Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Today, if you have your Bible, we're going to open to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Today, we're continuing in a series creatively titled Hebrews, and that was funny, and you know it was. Tough crowd today. Um, What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at chapter 7 and chapter 8 this morning, and by God's grace, we're going to go through it. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I truly believe that something beautiful happens whenever we begin to work through the scripture like that because we end up seeing verses that we otherwise maybe would have ignored for a hundred years. So very exciting. Let's lean in today. Hebrews chapter seven, beginning in verse one. This Melchizedek was the king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. And then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end of his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in his battle. Skip down with me to verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended. Why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? If the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served as the altar as priests. What I mean is the Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. Jesus is like Melchizedek. If you would pray with me one more time today, Lord, we love you so much. We're incredibly grateful for the book of Hebrews. And I pray that this morning that you would bring it to life right before our eyes. I pray, Lord, that any distractions that may be going on in our life, We choose to lay them at your feet right now to focus on your word. I pray you'd be strong in my weakness. Give us eyes to see what the spirit is revealing to the church. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. A little bit of the background of the book of Hebrews, it's really important that we all start on the same foundation, is that the book of Hebrews was written to Messianic Jews who had started on fire for Jesus. They repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. They were excited, passionate followers of Christ, 
But as the years went by and time lapsed, many of these Jewish believers began to waver in their faith, and many of them, unfortunately, were minimizing Christ and turning back to Judaism and the Mosaic Law. The author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes 13 magnificent chapters like a lawyer making their case before this messianic audience to encourage them, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old covenant. Remain true and may your faith be anchored in Jesus Christ. That's the context of the entire book of Hebrews, all right? And if you missed any of the previous weeks, you can get caught up at your own convenience online at visionchurch.com or our YouTube channel. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna go take a look at chapter seven. And the overarching theme of chapter seven is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. You're welcome. I did not ask you to say that name to your neighbors. So you're welcome. I spared you the humiliation. Now, really quickly, I just got to warn you that chapters seven and eight are somewhat theologically complex. Okay. In fact, scripture tells us that this is the meat of God's word, what we're gonna be talking about. So if you can handle this sermon today, then you can handle the meat of God's word, all right? So bear with me. Some of these things are a little bit complex and I'm gonna do my best through the Holy Spirit's help to make this simple for all of us. So keeping in mind who Hebrews is written to, chapter seven is specifically addressing one major doubt that was central in the hearts of these wavering Messianic Jews, and that was this. The claim of Hebrews is that Jesus is our eternal high priest. And many of them had a great intellectual block pertaining to Christ as high priest because Jesus did not hail from the lineage of Levi. Now, I know today in 2022, as you hear this, you're like, okay, big deal. But you got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. And when God gave them the promised land, he gave them, he gave them the land in portions of tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And back in this time period, not just anyone could become a priest, let alone a high priest. You had to be born of the lineage of Levi, only the Levites could be priests or high priests in Judaism. So my dad was a brick mason and he built his own construction company and his own uh, companies. My dad was an entrepreneur. And so by the Old Testament, I would not qualify as a priest. I'm thankful that we're not under the Old Testament, uh, the Torah anymore, okay? Because you couldn't just decide to be a priest. You literally had to be born into it, okay? In fact, there's a whole book about this in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. It's about the Levitical priests. The, the Levites were the only ones who could be priests. And when we look back at the lineage of Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And so these Jewish Christians we're being pulled back by their Pharisees and Sadducees friends. They're pulling them back saying, hey, 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 this guy that you're worshiping, calling Messiah, he's disqualified from being a high priest, let alone a priest at all, because he's born of the tribe of Judah. And we all know that in order to be a priest, you got to come from the tribe of Levi. 
Does this make sense now? Okay, so you, this is their argument. And because of this, many of them are turning away. They're like, well, yeah, he must be a false Messiah because he should have been from the Levitical tribe. Okay, but not so fast. And we got to zoom in. But really quickly, I would also like to illustrate one more principle here. The Hebrews stopped growing and maturing spiritually at the place their doubt began. Where doubt enters your faith, that is the place where we stop growing and progressing and maturing in Christ. And some of you, you're not doubting or wrestling with your faith over which tribe Jesus was born into. At least I hope not. I hope that's not your hang up. But some of you, you may be wrestling with your faith in the area of science versus Christianity, creation versus evolution, young earth versus an old earth, the apologetics. Maybe science and all that isn't your hang up. Maybe biblical sexuality and the biblical definition of marriage is where you're hung up and you're stuck and you're doubting and wavering. Let me challenge you that you cannot just run from your doubts. Your intellectual crossroads, you've got to meet them head on and seek truth and find God's word, find answers to his word because where your doubt begins, your spiritual development stops. So the author of Hebrews is reaching out to them at the place of their spiritual doubt, their blockage, and it's over the lineage of Christ. Okay, we're all on the same page now. All right, now watch how this unfolds because it's absolutely powerful, all right? The argument that the Hebrews writer makes is that Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, you're right, but he's actually of the order of Melchizedek. And I know when we hear Melchizedek, we're like, it's a strange name and what does this mean? But you gotta go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, for the first time, it introduces a character named Melchizedek. And here's what the scripture tells us about Melchizedek, that he was a king of righteousness. He was a king of, of, he was a king of peace. In fact, it says that he was the king of Salem, which in Genesis 14 later became Jerusalem, the holy city. Not only was Melchizedek a king, but he was also a priest, a priest king. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would ultimately become our eternal high priest and king, a king of righteousness, a king of peace. Scripture says that Melchizedek was without father or mother, and that he continues to be a priest forever. I want you to understand that this reference to Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis 14 is pointing forward to our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who also had no beginning and no end. Just like they couldn't find Melchizedek's mom and dad, you will not find the beginning of Christ. He did not arrive in a manger in Bethlehem. That is not his beginning story. He is the infinite, transcendent, omnipresent God of all creation. He had 
has no beginning and he has no end. Like Melchizedek, you cannot trace the beginning of Jesus Christ. He is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. And he has no end. The grave could not hold him. The tomb could not stop him. Death could not hinder him because he is our eternal high priest. He is the resurrection and the life. All the way back in Genesis 14, we see glimpses of a character named Melchizedek that reveals facets of the character and nature of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys are hung up that Jesus is not a priest from the tribe of Levi, but I want to direct your attention all the way back before Levi was, before Aaron was, before even Abraham was, there was an order of a high priest named Melchizedek, who transcends them all. And Melchizedek is of the order of Jesus Christ. And yes, he is our high priest. He is the rightful Messiah of the people of Israel. Does that make any sense at all? Because you have Melchizedek, then Abraham, then the Levites. So the author is saying he's of a priestly order that even transcends Aaron and the Levites. He is the rightful Messiah and the Lord of all. In fact, I gotta make one more observation. Last week I made a comment that, that Melchizedek was a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Some people got a little ruffled by that. They didn't like it. Welcome to Vision Church. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, but I do want to say this with all, with all due respect. Um, there are brilliant people who claim that Melchizedek was a Christophany. He was an Old Testament revelation of Jesus. But there are also brilliant people and respected theologians that say he wasn't a Christophany. He was just a real dude who happened to be a king and a priest who they had no record of his birth or death, and he pointed forward to Christ. Let me help you. It doesn't matter if he was a Christophany or not. The point is Melchizedek was a shadow, a type who Hebrews says resembled the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, and pointed forward to him. So can we agree on that? Okay. Also, I love this. The author of Hebrews not only mentions Genesis 14, but he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, which says this. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a big deal, church, because the author of Hebrews is using the Old Testament to make his case. He's using the Torah back on them to say, don't you know that even David, he said of the Messiah that he would not be a Levite? David, when he spoke of the Messiah, said he would come of the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron, not of the Levites, but one greater. Amen. What this should do is it should build your faith and confidence in the infallibility of the word of the living God. It truly is his inspired word. It really is. Continuing on in this point here in chapter seven, the author says that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham for two reasons. Because Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe and also Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And for these two reasons, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham 
And he's implying that Christ is greater than Abraham. Christ is greater than Moses, Aaron, and the Levites. While I'm here, I have to talk about the tithe for just a minute. And don't get nervous. We already took an offering today, okay? But we have to teach on this really quickly because a tithe was Abraham giving the first tenth of his possessions to the Lord his God through the priest Melchizedek, okay? When we talk about tithing, everybody gets nervous and they're all weirded out, but just we just need to relax and recognize, yes, the church has done a terrible job in centuries past talking about money. Yes, people have been selfish. Yes, pastors have been greedy. All of that is shameful and God will judge the living and the dead one day, okay? But scripture does teach that we are to give and be generous unto the Lord. Now I'm gonna say something that's probably gonna shock you. In the Old Testament, tithing was commanded. And the reason that it was commanded to give the first tenth to the Levites is because of all the 12 tribes, they were the only tribe that did not possess land in the promise. Because their mission was not to farm, milk, honey, do all that. Their mission was to minister to the Lord and to the people. And because they didn't have property, the other tribes were commanded to give a tenth to the tribe of Levi so that they could sustain their priestly duties, okay? It was a commandment in the Old Testament. I do not believe it is a commandment in the New Testament today. Everybody's shocked and you don't know what to say. Some people say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I had one guy, this is true, in our decision lunch, you know, where we meet with people who gave their life to Christ, this one guy told me, he goes, you know what, I love Vision Church, it's my favorite church ever. You know why? Because they don't take an offering. I was like, bro, if that's the only reason you don't love Vision Church, we're failing. <laughs> like, this must be a little funny. Just relax. Here's where I'm going with this. In the Old Testament, yes, tithing was a commandment. And they, give, they gave because they had to. But Abraham gave to Melchizedek before there was a law. Abraham gave to Melchizedek voluntarily. He gave a tenth not because he had to. He gave a tenth because he wanted to. He gave sacrificially because it was an act of his worship towards his great God. And in the New Testament, you are not under the burden of you have to. But in the New Testament, we certainly are called to be a generous people. We are called to be generous to one another. We're called to be generous to God in our giving. And we are called to give as an act of worship. And although in the New Testament, you're not commanded to give the first 10%, if you look at New Testament generosity, you'll find that people were giving far and above 10%. They were giving their best. They were giving their first to God and to the advancement of his kingdom. So at Vision Church, we do encourage you to give and to give generously to the Lord your God. You with me? And by the way, the scripture says one more thing about giving in the New Testament. It can be summarized in this. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There's two powerful facets to that statement. The first one is this, where your treasure is, it reveals your heart. So if you look at your bank statement, it will tell you where your heart really is. My bank statement says I, my heart's at Chick-fil-A, okay? <laughs> I repent right now, Lord have mercy, okay? So, it's kind of true. It is true. Okay. But, but so your money reveals where your heart really is. 
okay? But the other side of it is where you give, there your heart also follows. If you purchase something, stocks, a car, whatever it is, the thing that you buy, guess what? Your heart follows that thing. Your heart is linked to that thing. So if we give generously to the Lord where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Isn't that a powerful promise? It's beautiful. Moving on to chapter eight, verse one. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. And there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. Skipping down with me to verse six. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who, me who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said... The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Verse 10, but this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And for I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And when the Lord God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he's made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. I wish somebody would give the Lord praise right now for that text. That is amazing. Hebrews 8 is on fire, church. It's incredible. Over the remaining few moments of this message, we're going to take a look at chapter 8 really quickly. And first, I want to direct your attention to this. In chapter 7, the author makes the case that he overcomes their doubt and their objection by saying Jesus may not be a Levite, but he descends from an order that even transcends the Levites from Melchizedek. Not only is Jesus Messiah, he is the rightful high priest. The reason that matters is right here in chapter eight, now the author doubles down on why Jesus being our high priest is so significant. Because he says right here in the first three verses, our high priest had to bring an offering before God. In the Old Testament, one of the things of the Levites, they had to bring an offering anytime they entered the presence of God. Look at your neighbor and say, they had to bring an offering. The priests would dare not enter God's throne room empty-handed because they realized that worship is not about what I can get out of it. They realize it's about me bringing something of worth to my God. Yeah. 
And I pray that we get the same heart and mindset. It's not even about the money. It's not about that. But we need to stop looking at church like a consumeristic, how it can benefit me in my convenient Western civilization. How do I feel? How do I get blessed? No, no, no. If you get nothing from it, may we be people that bring our praise, bring our worship, bring our love and adoration to the feet of the master. May we be contributors, not consumers. Yeah. Trust me, you start being a contributor, watch your life change. Watch your life change, okay? Because there's something wired in the human DNA. We are designed to be generous. We are designed to be selfless. We're designed to give. And in doing so, we find life in its fullness, okay? But back to this, the high priest could not come empty-handed. But this high priest, Jesus Christ, did not enter the throne room with the blood of a pigeon or a goat or a lamb. No, our high priest, Jesus Christ, came with a gift bearing his own blood from the cross. He himself became an offering once for all time for our sin. Our priest came with an offering, yes he did, and he was the offering. His body was broken on the cross. His blood was shed on Calvary to take away the sins of the world. And the blood of a goat or a lamb or a pigeon in the Old Testament merely covered our sin, but the blood of our high priest cleansed us from all sin and unrighteousness. It did more than cover, it cleansed us. That's why this argument of Jesus being our rightful high priest matters. He is the rightful Messiah, Lord over all. Continuing down into chapter eight, verses six through 11, say that not only is he a high priest, He's a greater high priest than his predecessors. And just like he's a greater high priest, his covenant is greater than theirs. Look at your neighbor and say, this covenant is better. And church, what I'm about to share with you is just, it's dynamic. It's incredible. It should light a joy and a passion and a love inside of every one of you that is unceasing. The author of Hebrews is now appealing not only is he from the order of Melchizedek, not only is Jesus our high priest, but with our high priest comes a new law, a new order. And it's far better than that of the old. And the author is writing to these Messianic Jews and he's saying, don't you dare go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old covenant. The old covenant is powerless to save you. It's built on old promises. But the new cup, the new covenant, it is sweeter, it is greater, and it's built on more irrevocable promises. And I'm gonna show you just in a few moments what the author of Hebrews is showing us here as he contrasts the old covenant from the new. This is incredible. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Listen, the old covenant that was mandated in Judaism was that of striving and straining and working and yearning to appease God through means of the law. It was all about your effort, your obedience, your goodness. It was all about you and your obedience to the meticulous laws, which by the way, in the Old Testament, there's well over 600. You think there was 10, no, there were 600 plus, okay? So the old covenant is of striving, straining and work. Oh, but the new covenant, 
is one of grace and one of mercy and one of faith. The old covenant said, if you want to make it to heaven, you better obey the law perfectly. But the new covenant says you could never obey the law perfectly and you are saved by grace through faith. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but find life everlasting. One way says you must work. The other says enter into my rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me just as you are, and I will transform you, forgive you, and wash your sins away. Which covenant sounds better to you? You better get it right. It's the new. (laughs) Somebody says the old, I'm going to pray for you right now. (laughs) All right. Not only that, but the Old Testament You were responsible for your behavior. You were responsible for your sin. And you were responsible for the obedience to the law. But in the New Testament, Hebrews 7.22 tells us that Jesus is our co-signer on the new covenant. In other words, you know what a co-signer means? It means when you default, he takes over. When you come up short, his grace is sufficient. The old was based on your merit. The new is based on his merit. Oh, I'm about to take a lap up in here. Do you feel what I'm saying to you today? This is life changing. This is the richness and the meat of God's word. It gets no better. It gets no better. The old covenant was initiated through Moses in the wilderness. The new covenant was initiated through Jesus during the last supper. The old covenant was all about earthly physical promises. It was about the promised land protection from their physical enemies. It was a covenant based on conditional obedience. If you obey me, I'll protect you. If you keep my word, you will be my people. That's how it was based. But the premise of the old covenant was all about the physical, the promises of earth here and now. In fact, do you realize that in the old covenant, there was absolutely zero provision for eternal salvation and for your life eternal. Zero. It was all about the earth and physical promises. They thought, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they truly believed that you made it to heaven by keeping the law. But I gotta show you something in Romans 3.19. Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose, church, read this, is to keep people from having excuses and to show that everyone in the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Did you you read that? The author of Hebrews is reaching back out to these wavering, wandering Messianic Jews, and he's saying, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to Judaism because the law can never make you right before God. The law only exists to prove you guilty. It can't save you. The moment that you break one commandment, you've broken them all and it loses its power to save. I'm going to bring this home to you. The law still today cannot save you. I'm going to ask you a question. When was the last time you were driving on 485 and a state trooper lit you up, pulled you over and said, you know what, sir, I would love to congratulate you because today I caught you driving 64 in a 65 and I want to deem you righteous. (laughs) 
here's a gold star. <laughs> right? It doesn't happen. The law, why? Because the law was not given to prove you righteous. The law exists for one reason, to show us how sinful and how broken we actually are. And the conclusion God then wants us to draw is our dependence on a savior. When you realize you're guilty and you have nowhere else to turn, that's when you turn to Christ, his lordship, his death on the cross. That's the power of the law. Here's why this is significant. Today in Charlotte, North Carolina, if you stood at the corner of Trade and Tryon and you asked 100 people, are you going to heaven? Literally 99.9% .9 of them will tell you, yes, I'm going to heaven. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. Everybody says, yeah, I'm going. And then you ask them why. Why are you going to heaven? And you'll get the same answer almost every time. Because I'm a good person. Good based on what? Well, the truth is we can all find somebody who sins just a little bit worse than we do. And so when we compare our sin to their sin, we feel like <laughs> I'm pretty good, you know? But I gotta tell you something. I gotta warn you. The law will not save you. Your goodness will not save you. On the day of judgment, you will all be found guilty, fallen short of the glory of God because on the day of judgment, God will not compare your sins to your neighbors. He will compare your sin to Christ, which is the standard of the righteousness of God. And next to Christ, we're all in trouble. That's why when we were dead in our sin and lost in our trespasses, he was rich in mercy and he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son to die for us on the cross to take away the sins of the world. That's why we're in a new covenant today, a better covenant because the old one was flawed. It could not save. But now by faith in his grace, we can find mercy at the foot of the cross. This is a new covenant, a new era, a new day. And the former has passed away and in Christ all things are made new. Another major distinction between the old covenant and the new is the old covenant, what you will find in Exodus 19.5 is it's very conditional. It says, now if you obey me and keep my commandments, here it is on the screen, you will be my own special treasure from among all people on earth for all the earth belongs to me. Two things to notice. In the old covenant, it talks about the physical here and now, and it starts with a very conditional promise. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant. The Old Testament is conditional. The New Testament is based on his grace and his mercy. The old covenant was based on your obedience to which we all fall short. And in our righteousness, it's like filthy rags before God, but the new is built on his grace and his love and the blood of his son. The new covenant salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but it is a free gift to sinners. None of us can boast about this salvation for none of us deserve it or could earn it. 
And see, here's the thing, church. When you understand the words coming out of my mouth and when you actually believe it, you, it causes you to love God in a whole new context. It causes you to be grateful in a whole new way. Because so long as you feel good about you, you'll always hold back praise that rightfully belongs to him. But when you begin to see who you really are and what you really deserve and what Christ really did for you, you cannot hold back your praise. You cannot hold back your life. You become exuberant in your praise and in your worship for him. Amen. The old covenant says, if you'll do it, then you'll be saved. The new covenant says, and watch this, it's all over, it's all over Hebrews 8. He says, I will make the promise. I will, I will, I will. The new covenant is marked by a one-sided promise. Even if you fail and you come up short, it's still on me and I'll hold true to my word. What a great and mighty God. The new covenant is far greater, far sweeter than the old. It's based on grace through faith. By the way, the old covenant, they only knew of the spirit of God being with them or resting upon them. But in Hebrews 8, it says that now my law will be written on your heart and it will be written in your mind. This is a foreshadowing, a glimpse that not only are you entering a new covenant, but now his Holy Spirit is not just around you, beside you, but now the Holy Spirit lives within you. And now the word is not written on stone tablets. Now his law is written on your heart. His peace is now inside of you. His guidance, his wisdom, his mercy, his nudging, his direction, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now alive in us. His word is on our heart, not on tablets of stone anymore. This is Emmanuel, God with us. We have a promise that's far greater. Do you see that today? The Old Testament, they didn't have that promise. They did not know what it was like to have his presence, the Prince of Peace living inside of them. Glory be to God in the highest. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, when you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, it doesn't mean that you're perfect or without sin, but it means that you're given a new heart and a new desire. You don't see sin the way you used to. Your appetite changes. You want to want what he wants and despise what he despises. It's a, new, it's a transformation of your heart. The Holy Spirit changes how we think, feel, and act, and it transforms us from the inside out. Charles Spurgeon is quoted saying this, one of, the most, one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, the best way to make a man keep a law is to make him love the law giver. <laughs> and that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's not now in the new covenant, it's not that we're disobedient. It's not that we just live however we want to and say, well, grace will cover it. No, no, no. Romans 6, should we just continue on in sin that God's grace may abound? No, that's not the right heart. No, we're not saved by our perfection. No, we're not saved by our obedience. But the mark of a person born again is a changed heart, a changed life. You don't want to live like that any longer. And by the way, now it's not, I look at Christianity as something I have to do in order to make it to heaven. No, no, no. I do these things and I abstain from other things, not because I have to, to be a Christian. No, I do them because I love him more. 
I gotta bring this up one more time, real fast. My wife made me watch The Bachelorette <laughs> once, more than once. And anyway, there was a Bachelorette on there and I'll never forget it. And I just keep using this illustration. I've used it twice now, but here's the third time. And I'll never forget it. She was professing a Christian. She was professing to be a Christian. She's like, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. But yeah, she was doing things that uh, Christians should not be doing. And everybody started to call her out on it. They started to call her. They're like, well, you say you're a Christian, but you're doing things that, you know, Jesus wouldn't be doing. And I'll never forget her reaction. I must jump. I like, I was like, I would have just like freak out. She goes, well, I know I, I'm sinning, but God still loves me. He still loves me. You know what? She's right. God does still love her in spite of her sin. But the real question is, does she love God? Oh, I'm preaching to you now. See, I know you keep doing it because you think, well, God loves me. And you're right. But eventually there's going to come a moment in your life where you stop hiding behind that and you start to ask yourself the real question. Do you love him back? Because if you love the lawgiver, you want to please him. You want to, you want to serve him. You want to honor him. You're not living for the world. You're living for him. And I wonder, are you there yet where you love him? In closing today, Hebrews 8, 12. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And when God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. And now it is out of date and will soon disappear. I want you to remember these last words right here from verse 12. And I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sin. This is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the omnipotent one who knows all things. He sees the end from the beginning. Nothing is hidden from him. All things are exposed before his eyes. Scripture says that when you repent and you place your faith in Christ, he forgives and forgets your sin never to be remembered again. That is a miracle. That is a promise. And that is a great new covenant. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.